the gospel is needed in the body of Christ. It is necessary because just as society is really messy, so is the church. And why is society messy? Because it is full of sinful people. Why is the church messy? It is full of sinful people. Even though we have been saved in Christ Jesus, the old nature still fights the new. Thus, we must keep going back to God's Word to be cleansed, to be sanctified, to be drawn ever closer in holiness to Christ Jesus. And just like last week's topic was very difficult, this week's topic is even more so. Marriage and divorce. Marriage and divorce affects everybody. I don't think there's anybody in here who hasn't been affected directly or indirectly by both marriage and divorce. In fact, this is probably the most difficult topic any pastor has to deal with within the church. And because it is so difficult of a topic, most pastors will not preach on this. It is that difficult. But because pastors don't want to preach on this, the church drifts from God's Word. And because the church drifts from God's Word, society drifts from God's Word. There's a phrase that kind of puts it all together. As the pulp, as goes the pulpit, so goes the church. As goes the church, so goes the nation. And how has our nation done lately? Not good. I want to read a snippet by uh, R.C. Sproul. He's now gone to glory, but I have learned so much from him and continue to learn much from him. He uh, had a snippet from an article. In 1948... The famous Harvard social historian Sorokin wrote an essay in which he sounded alarm about the rapid disintegration and stability of the American culture. In the essay, he pointed out that in 1910, the divorce rate in America was 10%. Yet from 1910 to 1948, it went from 10% to 25%. He indicated that if a quarter of the homes in any given nation are broken by divorce, the stability of the nation cannot endure. Its culture is torn to shreds, arguing that the family unit is the most basic and foundational unit in every society. He said that when that unit breaks, the society itself suffers a shattered community. So how have we done since 1948? Yeah, it's worse. On the low end, it's estimated that anywhere from 40% up to 50% or even more of marriages end in divorce. And the statistic is much worse for second and third marriages. There is much, much brokenness 
in our society because there is brokenness in marriage. So how do we fix that? How do we deal with the brokenness? Do we just create more laws? No. We deal the brokenness with brokenness by going back to God's Word. We go back to God's Word. It is God who said what is good and brings both joy and life to us. It is God who is God's Word that also has warned us what brings heartache and sorrow. So today we're going to go back to God's Word in this very difficult topic. And here's where I want to pray before we get into all of the topic. So let's pray. Father and Holy God, this morning and every morning, help us to lay our, aside our thoughts, our opinions, our things of this world, and be filled by your word. By the power of the Holy Spirit, straighten our minds, our hearts, our soul according to your word. Strengthen us with the will to follow your will, your desire. Guide us in ever holiness in following Christ Jesus, our Savior, who is the very wisdom of God. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So this morning, we're actually going to be dealing with all three Scripture readings today. We're going to be starting out with uh, Gospel of Matthew, go to Genesis, and eventually end with Corinthians. So we're going to be covering it all because this is a difficult topic. I'm going to make it pretty simple for you today, though. Here's our roadmap. God gave us His Word. God gave us His design. Yet we sin. Thus, we must always come back to the cross. So let's begin with God gave us His Word. We're going to begin with Matthew chapter 19, starting verse 1. And now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, He went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed Him, and He healed Him there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? So, here's the context. Jesus had finished his ministry, his preaching, his teaching, the healing, everything in Galilee. And now he goes about 50 to 60 miles south towards the Dead Sea in a region called Perea. Now, in this region, it was controlled by Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas, it's important to know this, because it was Herod who divorced his first wife and then married his brother-in-law, actually, I'm sorry, his half-brother, I think. Yeah, his half-brother's wife. Okay? So, Herod divorced his first wife so he could marry his half-brother's wife. Not only is that wrong, it's pretty messed up, isn't it? John the Baptist heard about this. John the Baptist confronted Herod 
and said, this is wrong, it is unlawful. Herod didn't like that. And so he put John the Baptist in jail. And then with more plot twists, so to speak, John the Baptist becomes beheaded by Herod. That's what's important to know about this particular region. So when the Pharisees come to test Jesus, it's not just a religious question, is it? It is a political question. And depending on how one answers, you could lose your head. So, they come up to Jesus, and they test him. And they say, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Now, you also have to understand that there was a group of rabbis And this group, there were two groups, basically, sorry, two groups of rabbis. One group was more conservative, and they had a very strict definition of what was lawful for a divorce. But there was another group who followed a very famous rabbi called Hillel, and he was much more liberal, and divorce could be done for the flimsiest of excuses. So. Not only were there political, there was both conservative and liberal. And if you think conservative and liberal are just something of today's world, no. It's been that way since the beginning. So, they come up and they ask him this gotcha question, right? And it is a gotcha question. Just like you see, in our modern day and age, so many reporters, so many people just ask gotcha questions. And if you answer a certain way, you could lose your head. Just like today, right? In a job, if somebody says, well, do you think anybody can just get married? That's a gotcha question, isn't it? And you could actually either keep your job or lose your job, depending on the politics within that particular company. But Jesus, they they don't realize that they are asking Jesus, right? God in the flesh, omniscient, knowing everything. And so because he is all-knowing, and he is truly the wisdom of God, we really have to pay attention to what he says. Because he does not go for the prevailing winds of the day. He's not interested in that at all. Here's what he says. He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made the male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and a mother shall hold and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Listen, Jesus does not see which way the winds are blowing, does he? He's not interested, are they blowing conservative? Are they blowing liberal? Are they blowing any other way? 
He is interested in one and one thing only. And he says, have you not read? And the way it's written there, it is almost a rebuke. Have you not read? See, it is God's word alone that is the source of authority. It is not man's opinions. It is not man's philosophy. It is not man's reasoning. It is none of that is God's word and God's word alone that is the source of authority. What's the difficulty with this? Well, one thing is most people don't know God's word. And if they do happen to stumble upon God's word, And if it doesn't agree with their feelings or thoughts or philosophy or something, they dismiss it. But Jesus does not dismiss God's word. And he points back to Genesis. Have you not read from the beginning? So God has given his word and God has given us his design. Now we're going to go to Genesis, and I'm going to go from 18 through 24, not all of the, not all of the uh, verses, but most of them here. And I can't fit them all on screen, so you've got a selection. Then the Lord God, then the Lord God said, "It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him." So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. So when you take a look at this particular section of Scripture, there are four things to be brought out. One, it was not good for man to be alone. Eve is of the same essence of Adam. Eve fulfilled what Adam lacked, and they shall become one flesh. So let's take a look at each one of those. It is not good for man to be alone. This is the first time in all of creation, creating creation, that God has said something is not good. Go back and read Genesis. It says, and this is good. And he said, this is good and good. But for here, for Adam, he says, this is not good. So how are we we to understand that? Does this mean that... uh, Adam was made wrong or is in a bad state or that God simply forgot something? No, none of that. It simply means that there is more work to be done for Adam, for the ideal man. So there is more work to be done. And thus God formed Eve. Now, Eve is of the same essence of Adam. She was taken from his rib. She has the same essence, the same DNA. As a matter of fact, when Adam saw Eve, he said, this at last 
is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. There's like an exclamation. I recognize you. And it's not just another person, but also one of intellect, one of moral capability, one of God's very image. This is who he sees. And so, why is this important? Because it's not just, there are a lot of, there are a lot of people who have interpreted this that God just made Eve as a helper, a servant. And so she's somehow less than the man. I mean, that, just read the history books. You can find that throughout history. She is equal in the image of God. Different body? Yeah. Intellect? No. Same intellect? Same DNA? Same everything else. So, when you degrade a woman, you are degrading a person who's made in the image of God. When you degrade a man, you are degrading someone who has been made in the image of God. So, it was, good, it was not good for man to be alone. Eve is of the same essence of Adam, and Eve filled what Adam lacked. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Let's clarify, what does a helper fit for him? It does not mean a servant. Okay? Somebody who is just there to serve Adam. It does not mean that at all. In a literal sense, it is more like the opposite that fits together with the other. Think of a jigsaw puzzle, right? You've got two pieces, and one fits the other. Is one piece better than the other? No! They are simply made for one another, and thus made to fit together. That's the sense of what we're talking about here. And the one fulfills what the other lacks. Just like in a jigsaw puzzle, the one fulfills what the other lacks. I've often said that opposites don't attract, they marry. Right? One fulfills what the other lacks. So in the Garden of Eden, you have the ideal marriage. You do. Adam and Eve together complementing each other, fulfilling the design that God gave. Though they are distinct, they are harmonious, and there is no barrier between them. I mean, rather, just the opposite. It says they were naked and not ashamed. And it says, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And this is the profound mystery that there is in marriage. It expresses the deepest union that you can have with another. The deepest, greatest union. Not just a physical nature, but the total self to the other. 
the spiritual bonding of a man and a woman. And that's why you cry during weddings, right? You cry because you see the deepest, most profound union, the ideal. This is God's design for marriage. It's beautiful, isn't it? What a beautiful design for marriage. And we mess it up. We mess it up because we sin. So God gave us His Word. God gave us His design. And yet we sin. So let's go back to the Gospel of Matthew. They said to him, then, they said to him Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. So let me ask you a couple questions. From the beginning, did God design divorce to be part of marriage? No, he didn't, did he? It was to be a lifelong monogamous, monogamous, (laughs) that too. Okay, I'll just make up words. Just two, right? For the entire life. That's what was designed. Now, did God allow, eventually, for divorce? He did. Does that mean God approves of divorce? No. As a matter of fact, in the Scripture, it says God hates divorce. A very clear statement. Why does He hate divorce? Because of what it does. The harm and the brokenness that occurs. That's why God hates divorce. Because of that brokenness. And why did God allow for an exception? Because of hardness of heart. And what's another way to say that? Sin. God allowed an exception because of sin. And let's be clear. Every divorce... Every divorce is rooted in sin. Now, this is not to place... I know, I know there are people here and people who are listening who have been harmed by the sin of a spouse. I know that. So I am not trying to place further weight or blame at all. N- not at all. Because actually, sin knows no bounds. Men can sin. Women can sin. And they can both sin greatly. But every divorce is actually rooted in sin. So, when you take a look at this, here's a way to consider all of this. God allowed a concession for sin. He didn't design it, but he he allowed a concession. God conceded, gave us a concession on account of sin to life to make life more bearable for the one sinned against. And I think that's a really good way to think about this. God made a concession on account of sin to make life more bearable for the one sinned 
against. And you have to think about this. This is an act of grace and mercy in the midst of sin. This is wonderful act of grace and mercy. The trouble is, here's the trouble though. We take God's grace and we take his mercy and we want to stretch it out. We want to look for loopholes and create more and more legal loopholes in his grace and mercy. I mean, that's what the Pharisees were doing. They said, Moses commanded. Moses didn't command that there had to be divorce. Look, I, I, I know of marriages in which there has been great sin, but there's been repentance, forgiveness, reconciliation, and a marriage made whole, all in Christ Jesus. But they, the legalists, were looking for loopholes. They said, Moses commanded. And Jesus says, Moses allowed. So, Same in our culture today, isn't it? I will add my opinion in here about prenuptial agreements. They should never be written. Because now they make what God has designed into a legal marriage. And it is a marriage of legalism. I understand why people do it, because of sin. But it should never be, because that's not from the beginning. So. Regarding legal loopholes with the Pharisees, how does Jesus respond? Well, he says this, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. It's clear saying, isn't it? There aren't any loopholes in there, is it? Are there? And I'm sure it silenced the Pharisees. I'm sure it silenced the crowd just as it would silence all of us to this day when we come face to face with what Jesus said. Now notice Jesus does give a concession, doesn't he? He says there is a reason you could get divorced, which is sexual immorality. But at the same time, he also reinforces the sixth commandment, which is you shall not commit adultery. And he's saying if you divorce your spouse for any reason other than this, it is the same as adultery. So, he has a very clear view on what marriage should be. And when we think about marriage, we talk about it as the holy state of matrimony, right? You've heard those words before? It is to be holy, to be set aside, to be pure. I mean, in our culture nowadays, marriage is just, for some people, you see this online, it's just a phase you go through. Eh, I I got married. Everybody has to do that sometime or another. Or let's get hitched. It's like fingers on the blackboard for me when I hear that. Let's just get hitched. Take a guess, what has the highest divorce divorce rate? What state has the highest divorce rate? Nevada. Las Vegas, right? Let's go get hitched. 
highest divorce rate because they have everybody's lowered the bar so much. But Jesus says from the beginning, this is a holy, sacred bond. And sexual immorality breaks that bond. Sexual immorality. Now, some people want to split hairs here. And churches have split hairs on this as well. They will say, all right, sexual immorality means you must have slept with that other person, with another person to actually be adultery. Right? That's, that's, churches will say, well, all right, well, if you, you didn't sleep with them, then it's not adultery. Right? Splitting hairs on this. But Jesus was very clear. Sermon on the Mount. If you even lust after another, you've committed adultery in your heart. So here's a question. Do you have to be very careful with what you read, what you listen to, and what you watch? Things of a certain nature. I'll put it that way. Would that not also violate the holy bonds of matrimony? You see, a lot of people think it's only men who are addicted to that type of nature of things that I'm talking about here. But statistics show it is women, and women on a greater increasing scale than men now, or a faster rate, I should say. It is endemic. So my question for you is, is that not also adultery, sexual immorality? You see, you want to split the hair so fine, right? But Jesus doesn't. He does not split the hairs fine. However, because of our fallen nature, sin keeps voicing questions and giving justifications. I call these the yeah buts. Yeah, but what about this and what about this? So now we're going to go to the church of Corinth. We're finally going to get there. And they had all sorts of questions about marriage and divorce. Now, it seems that there was some understanding that in that particular time, that it was more spiritual to be single, right? They just had that. It was more spiritual to be single. And so thus, if you were married, should you divorce your spouse? Because then you would be more spiritual. But here's what Paul clearly states. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. Simply put, when he says, uh, not I, but the Lord, he is going back to the Ten Commandments. Okay, so here's another one. But what if my spouse is an unbeliever? Wouldn't it be better to divorce an unbelieving spouse? This was a very common issue within the church because as Christianity spread, you would have spouses who would become believers and spouses who would not be believers. This is a very common thing in our day, in our day and age. There are times when both are believers and you get married but then one falls away from the faith. Or you weren't believers when you got married, but then 
one became a Christian, probably to the dismay of the other spouse. Okay, so now you're unequally yoked, right? As they would call it. Should you divorce that spouse, the unbelieving spouse? And Paul says no. He says this, to the rest, to the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. So now, when Paul writes, I, not the Lord, it's not, some people have taken this to say, well, this is just his opinion, so we can ignore it. I'm very serious. People say, well, that's just Paul's opinion, so ignore it. What Paul is doing is what a lot of pastors have to do. They say, what are the principles laid down in Scripture? Because God has not covered all of the yeah buts. As many people as there are, there are that many yeah buts. So he hasn't covered everything. But this does not mean that he is simply giving his opinion. He is using his apostolic authority. And we believe that all Scripture is inspired by God. So this is the same force as a command from God. So what does he say there? He says, remain married. Remain married. Well, why is that? The answer is this, through you, the believer. God will work for your spouse's holiness for their very salvation. And it's often the case that your greatest mission field is at home with your spouse or with your family. So here's what he says. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband, or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So for those who are married to an unbelieving spouse, remain married. Love your spouse fully, completely, knowing that God is working through you for them, for their salvation. Never give up hope, and I know this is a hard one. I know this is hard. Okay, well, what about this? Uh, what if the unbelieving spouse divorces you, right? Like I said, there's a lot of yabats. What if the unbelieving spouse divorces you? Are you free to remarry? Paul says this, but if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so, in such case, cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. In essence, you are free to do what you wish. If you want to remain single, remain signal, single. If you want to marry, marry. You have that freedom. God has called you to peace. Okay, well, what, what about this? Um, what if, what if you get divorced for unbiblical reasons? No, no biblical reasons. I mean, there's the one that Jesus gave, and then the second one that Paul gave, if your spouse abandons you, 
What, but, but, but what if you just got divorced and then you remarried? Should you now, with this knowledge of God's word, should you divorce? No. No. Because that would simply create brokenness upon brokenness, wouldn't it? You don't want to do that at all. And brothers and sisters, this is where the cross comes in. This is exactly where the cross comes in. Some people think divorce is the unpardonable sin, and it is not. For all of us, we come to the cross. We come to the cross to receive forgiveness. You see, we can't heal the brokenness in our lives through a greater adherence to the law of God. Rather, we'd look to the cross of Christ, and in the cross we find forgiveness of sin. So we come, we repent, and then we are restored by His grace and mercy. Look, I know we could do 10 more sermons on all of the yeah buts in the world. We could. But God has given his word. He has given us his design. And though we sin, we go back to the cross of Christ again and again and again. Right? Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, we thank you for your word. Through your word, cleanse us, sanctify us, point us to the cross in which we receive forgiveness, redemption, where brokenness is made whole. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.